Good morning, everyone. I, uh, I know Swami A was on the schedule this morning. I didn't tie him up and put him in the closet. He's actually on a plane to Sydney, well, to L.A. first, and then to Sydney tomorrow. So uh, we figured it out on Tuesday that uh, he was going to have to get to the airport during his lecture. So mother pulled in uh, Swami B, and then we found out he was going to be in Chicago. So we've made it all the way down to letter C this morning. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. I uh, was looking a little bit at uh, Shiva this week, um, really something I know very little about, uh, but found such a beautiful ideal that um, when I was called in on the last minute to, to talk, I thought I would speak about uh, some of the things that inspired me. My friend Philip, when I was talking to him about the lecture today, he says I cheated a little bit, because uh, uh, what I'm going to do this morning, I... I I wanted to go into the mind of Shiva, uh, so the lecture was called, you know, The Inside Story. And uh, when I was contemplating the idea of going into the mind of Shiva, I was thinking, oh, that's very difficult because Shiva most, mostly is, is a mythical character, you know, someone from, from ages ago in history, and how can I really go into that mind? And uh, so when I was thinking about that, I remembered there, was at least, there were at least three great souls, Takor and... Uh, and uh, uh, Swami Shardananda and, and uh, um, um, Nag Mahashai, who all at one time either had a vision or, or made direct statements about Swamiji being an incarnation of Shiva. And so I thought I would take advantage of that immediate reference and delve into the mind of uh, Vivekananda to find out, to find the mind of Shiva, to plumb the mind of Shiva, and to, to see what the experience of living that way is. So before we do that, I want to start again with my tradition here of reading you a wonderful Hafiz poem. This one's called, They Call You to Sing. Stones are longing for what you know. If they had the graceful movement of your feet and your tongue, they would not stop laughing between their ecstatic dancing steps and their unbroken praise. Your heart, your heart beats inside a sacred drum. Its skin is tanned and stretched, our skin alive and stretched with the wild molecules of his most wondrous existence. Your mind, your eyes, are an immense silk cloth upon which all your thoughts and movements paint. Your soul once sat on an easel on my knee, for ages I have been sketching you with myriad shapes of sounds and light. Now awake, dear pilgrim, with your thousand swaying arms that need to caress the sky. Now awake, with your love for the friend and creation, help this old tavern sweeper Hafiz to celebrate. No more enemies from this golden view. All who have entered this holy mountain cave have dropped their shields and their swords. We all cook together around a fire, our yearning music builds. We share our tools, our instruments, our plates. We are companions on this earth. As the sun and planets are in the sky, we are all sentries at our sacred humble posts. The stones and stars envy the movement of your legs and your tongue 
and call you to sing on their behalf. The atoms in your cells and your limbs are full of wonderful talents. They dance in the hidden choir I conduct. Don't sleep tonight, dear pilgrim, so I can lead you on my white mare to his summer home. This love you now have for the truth will never forsake you. Your joys, your sufferings on this arduous path are lifting your worn veil like a rising stage curtain and will surely reveal your magnificent self so that you can guide this world like Hafiz in a hidden choir. God and his friends will forever conduct. I like that idea with the with the stones and the uh, you know the rocks and things envying your arms and your legs and your ability to sing and talk and pray. It's a you know it seems like a like a child's imagination to think of such things, but this world is relative, you know, and in that relative world everything becomes normal. That's one of the curses and maybe one of the blessings of living in a relative world is that everything becomes accepted as normal, becomes, becomes mundane. And we lack our appreciation to think of a rock, you know, that's just been sitting there for a thousand years, unable to express, unable to dance, unable to affect or to move in any way. To give that rock a pair of arms, you know, give that rock a voice. And like Hafiz says, that rock would not stop dancing, would not stop singing, you know, in Hafiz's mind, the praises of the divine for being given such an amazing gift. And here we've got them, <laughs> you know, take them completely for granted. We've had them now for as many years as we've been alive. And I think that spiritual life so much is a matter of renewing that, that clarity, renewing and reminding ourselves over and over and over again, because it's the relativity of this world that is the tool that produces forgetfulness. You know, the fact that everything falls into such a lull between two boundaries lulls us to a an, an lack of an appreciation, to sleeping, which is why, again, all the sages are constantly calling us to wake up, to remind yourself of how wonderful and how vast, how, how beautiful uh, this experience of life is, especially when you've got the orientation kind of laid out, you know, when you know that there is God and God alone, that love is at the heart and at the center of the world and the universe, and that nothing ever done has been motivated by anything but love, you know, to come from that understanding, to be able to practice that understanding and to take an assurance in that understanding is an amazing, an amazing thing to have, an amazing gift, really, you know, if we can use that overused word. An amazing gift, and uh, to, to to take time to think about that. It's it's locked into the lesson in some forms this morning. Some of that reminder, uh, but definitely it ends in a great celebration of that ideal. But we should remember as we jump into this again our three most important things. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think, oh, you should, Brahm, you shouldn't do that again. You know, you've been doing that every time for two years, but uh, I'm determined to do it all the way to the end, because there's a great story, uh, I probably told you this before, of St. John, you know, one of the direct disciples of, of Jesus, 
And uh, he was the only direct disciple of Jesus to die a natural death. And uh, when he was old, in his very aged years, the end of his life, uh, there was a congregation of Christians uh, that he used to, uh, I guess, hang out with. And uh, every week during the, at their weekly gathering, they would walk him up to the podium, you know, two people holding him up and bring him up, and he would always say the exact same things. He would always say, my brothers, my sisters, love one another. And then he would sit down. And that's all he said every single time at the end of his life. That's what it had all come to. Such a simple message. And I'm reminded of that. You know, when, when, when you give these lectures over and over and over again, which is, first of all, giving lectures was a new thing for me when I moved here, but now doing them over and over and over again is kind of becoming a new thing in itself. And I'm beginning to realize that after a while, as much as you try, you just keep saying the same things over and over and over again, that this is a very simple message. It's not complex. It doesn't take a great mind or a great intellect to understand. There's not a secret that has to be betrayed, you know, for us to do this. It's simply a matter of remembering, simply a matter of, of, of not being distracted from what is, from the actual reality that we're investigating, that we're sitting in the middle of. So in that, to kind of set our compass, we first take a look at our sincerity and our earnestness. Because Takor says that if you're sincere and if you're earnest, that God himself will take responsibility for you and will bring you uh, closer, will bring you to him. Even if you take a wrong turn, even if you're making the wrong practice, even if you strayed off the path or whatever, he'll take responsibility as, as long as you have that authenticity, that sincerity and earnestness inside about your practice, about wanting to know the truth. The second was very much like it from our beloved Jesus when he was asked what the most important thing was. We all know. He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, to bring those together, that, that is the most important thing in our spiritual life is love. It's our nature. It's the nature of God. It's, it's, it's the thing that every single one of us, and every, not just us, the whole world is searching for, trying to express that perfect love, you know, and it's being refracted in all sorts of odd ways these days. But you can always find a place, you know, and this is a good, a good thing for meditation. I, I went, but the first time this thought occurred to me, you know, that there was only one motivating power in the world, that it was love, I really couldn't swallow that for for a while. I was like, how can I look at the world? How can I look at the news and say that everything going on there is a matter of love? And uh, <clears throat> it is a challenging thing. I can say not now with any real <laughs> realization, but with some at least some intellectual conviction that I believe it to be true, that uh, for my test case... <laughs> give you a window into my own bizarre mind here but my test case at the time when I first had this thought I was reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and I don't know I don't remember what parts of that book brought me to this idea but I was riding my bus to work 
down the peninsula in San Francisco, and this idea came to me, and I was thinking, that's crazy. How is that possible, that everything's motivated by love? And at that time, the big thing in the news, the big story that was capturing everybody's imagination was that horrible story of Jeffrey Dahmer in Chicago. And so I took that as my test case. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, here you have one of the most heinous crimes of the time, test your theory, test your theory. So I began uh, reading everything I could read about his situation and his crime and his mind. And uh, even in that bizarrity, um, I'll share with you sometime when I'm not being recorded, <laughs> some of the things that uh, he said and some of the motives that he betrayed in his interrogations and uh, um, about his crimes that led me to understand that, yes, even in that situation, he was motivated by love problem with it, I, this is not the lecture and I'm getting sidetracked, but this whole idea that, that really there's a scale from zero to a hundred as it were, where zero is being completely body-based, completely believing yourself to be only this, that there is nothing else to you but this body, okay? That's being at this end of the scale. And if your love is expressed purely from that standpoint, your love benefits the least number of people and harms the maximum number of people. At that end of the scale, at the, the, more, the more honest end of that, the more, I guess, crystallized end of that scale, you would have your, your Hitlers and you, you know, your, your mass murderers and whatnot uh, who come from that. You know. And then at the other end of the scale, we have those that see themselves as that unifying spirit, that oneness in all, that self in all. And that would be your Buddhas and your Jesus and your Ramakrishnas, those people whose act of love benefit a huge number of people and harm a very small number of people. And that all of us fall into that an array. You know, we're all kind of a range in there depending on where we are in our spiritual development. You know, those of us that are very material-based, you know, will tend to have love, acts of love that are very particular, you know, very singular in their, in their thing. And those that are more spirit-based will have acts of love that are more general, you know, more beneficial to a wider variety of people. But to have that love, to express that love, to become conscious that you are capable, you know, just like this poem says, that this world is a silk canvas upon which you're able to paint your ideas of God. You know, you, you create your idea of God in your life. Is he powerless? Is he distant? Is he quiet? Is he aloof? Is he separate? You know, or is he imminent? Is he present? Is he active? Is he inspiring? It's up to you. You paint your picture. You decide what that role is and how it is. And the last thing is truth. When Ramakrishna was sitting on the banks of the Ganga throwing out those pairs of opposites, uh, he comes to the understanding that he can't throw out truth. That truth is fundamental to our journey, to our to our spiritual development, and to to our realization. You know, and the truth of the matter is that God alone is one without a second. That uh, we are all manifestations of that one and same divine being. And to hold on to that truth, and to work in our lives, to purify our minds to the point that there's an integrity, an alignment between that love. Which, which keeps our heart beating and, and causes our lungs to breathe in. From that level, 
all the way up to what comes out of our mouth and what we choose to do with our arms and our legs and the things we decide to, to say or create in the world, to try and create that inner integrity that's in alignment so that love doesn't get frittered away in bizarre refractions that are more difficult to interpret as love <laughs> by those on the outside, by those seeing uh, our painting, experiencing our art of life. So with that, let's jump into the mind of Vivekananda, if that's at all possible. There's a very famous letter that he wrote to Josephine McLeod, one of the most, I'm sure most of many of you probably even have this memorized. But I read it for the first time after a while this week, and it brought to light some beautiful ideas uh, about his mind and his experience of living. He's, he's, toward the end, toward the middle of the letter, he says to, to Josephine, he says, Behind my work was ambition, and behind my love was personality. Behind my purity was fear. Behind my guidance was the thirst of power. Now they are vanishing, and I drift. I come, mother, I come. In your warm bosom, floating wheresoever you take me, in the voiceless, in the strange, in the wonderful, I come. A spectator, no more an actor. Oh, it is so calm. My thoughts seem to come from a great, great distance in the interior of my own heart. They seem like faint, distant whispers and peace. Peace is upon everything. Sweet, sweet peace like that one feels for a few moments just before falling into sleep, when things are seen and felt like shadows, without fear, without love, without emotion, peace that one feels alone, surrounded with statues, pictures. I come, Lord, I come. The world is, but not beautiful, nor ugly, but as sensations without exciting any emotion. Oh, Joe, the blessedness of it. Everything is good and beautiful, for things are all losing their relative proportions to me, my body among the first. Oh, that existence. There's so many pieces in there <laughs> that are so difficult to understand, but just open the mind and open the heart when you sit and kind of just rest with any one of them. In the beginning, this, this, what he, this, this uh, almost confession that he's putting forward, behind my work was ambition, behind my love was personality, behind my purity was fear, behind my guidance the thirst of power. That realization, you know, it's one of the first ones of spiritual life. When you come in contact with these amazing ideals, these beautiful saints that have lived lives so endlessly inspiring. And when you're called and you're sitting there reading the scripture and Takur says things, you know, if, if you're trying to thread a needle and there's even one tiny hair going out, it's not going to go through that needle. So it is with you. If you have even one desire, you know, you're not going to realize God. And you read those things and you come and you, you grow as a spiritual person. You, you start hanging out with spiritual people and you just, Ooh, what am I? You, you know, you wake up every day with this, you know, you just... One desire, my God, I can't even have a three-second period where I'm not inundated with at least 12 of them. You know what I mean? It's like, 
Is this the first thing you do when you wake up? It's like, oh, what do I want to do today? It's like, oof, what? Oh, my God. It's starting immediately as you wake up. And there's a, there's, there's a, th- a thing about that. There's a reassurance in that because there's a temptation to feel guilty, to feel down because we identify with that side of ourselves more than we identify with the true nature of ourselves, you know, many of us at this point. We see ourselves as being that. We're this, this thing laden with desires, you know, just, just pummeled from moment to moment. It's like we can't do anything without having a preference. You know, do I want this cereal or that cereal? Do I want this drink or that drink? Am I going to wear this sweater? Or am I going to wear a chudder or not a chudder? <laughs> it's just, just an endless cacophony of desire from one moment to the next. You know, and I, for me in particular, you know, I, I, it's like, it's such a challenge in the morning when I put on my, my Gerwa. You know, I'm thinking, God... <laughs> How can I do this? How can I do this? What is this calling? You know, the, 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 this chasm that I see behind, behind what this renunciation represents, what this color represents, you know, and, and what me, the body that I'm putting it on, you know, is and the struggles and the, the, the pains and the selfishness and all of those aspects of it. You know, it's such a challenge, and you, 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 you want, you can write something like this. You know, it's like I could sit there and I go, oh, my lecture was a, f- a full on, you know, hypocrisy. And, you know, <laughs> everything that I did was for show, and I just, oh, I blah, blah, blah. And you just, you can get caught up in that. But see, he frames it in a much more beautiful place than that, because where is he sitting when he talks about these things? He's sitting in the bosom of mother, sitting in the lap of mother sitting there in, in the knowledge of God, the understanding of that divinity that is in him and is seeping out of every one of his pores. And he sees the refractions that his mind has done. He understands the impurity of them. He understands how they came out less than 100%, less than, less than perfect. But that's not his dwelling. That's just his introduction. He's just saying, yeah, I see that. I see it. You know, behind my work was ambition. I wanted to build. I wanted to create. I wanted to make a monument. You know, I wanted to build a, an order or whatnot. It's like he understood. He could see that only selfishness ever wants to build anything. You know, when you're living in the manifestation, manifestation of God, which is perfect. God is everywhere present and always perfect. There's nothing necessary in that sense. You know, but the mind makes things necessary, you know, things that have to be done. Thank you, Rajiv. And so we have to understand, you know, that, that anything that comes from that uh, place. Thank you. That anything that comes from that place has that tint. You know, Takur says that just to maintain a body, you have to have a desire of some kind. You know, he used to entangle himself in that body, we all know, by his desire to, to be with the devotees, you know, that to bring himself out of samadhi, he would often ask for a glass of water, you know, some need for the body, something to bring his mind down to that plane, you know. He had to, he had to, he had to, to struggle to stay down. <laughs> I'd like to know what that struggle's like someday. <laughs> so it's that understanding. Behind my love was personality, what does he mean by that? Just that whole notion. We express love, but there's always 
a wanting to, to have a return. You know, personality is your interface with the world at large. And so you make it pleasant. You make yourself someone nice to be around. You know, most, all, almost all of our love in this world, talk, I mean, Vivekananda points out, that it's shopkeeper's love, really, right? I mean, you can always find that. Just don't return a friend's phone call three or four times in a row, and you'll find out that there's not another phone call beyond that because you didn't do your part. You didn't pay your, pay your, your, your dues, you know, for that friendship. And all of our friendships are that way. It's a hard thing to realize. It's an ugly thing to realize, actually. When I moved into the monastery, I know I've, all my stories I've told before, so just know I'm only going to repeat stuff from now till I die. But when I first joined the monastery, I used to consider myself a very popular person. I used to throw these big dinner parties, and I'd have 40 or 50 people over at my house, and we'd have a great time, and it would be all wonderful. And then I went to India and, and, you know, found Vedanta and came back and joined the monastery. And there was only one rule for me when I moved into the monastery from Swami Prabhudananda. He said that I was not allowed to initiate contact with anybody outside the monastery. I could return phone calls and, uh, you know, I could, I could uh, uh, you know, people could come visit me, but I couldn't initiate anything. That one rule whittled all of my friends down to two people. <laughs> immediately. It wasn't even a matter of time. It wasn't like I kept getting phone calls and then it just sort of died out. I never got a phone call again. I was like, it was as if I had just fallen off the planet. And I was like, wow, I thought I was so popular. You know, I thought I was this, this, this great socialite there. And to find out that that was really the nature of all of my friendships was quite astounding, quite difficult to swallow, quite difficult to understand. So it's that, you know, we create our charming personalities in order to exist in a world of shopkeeping, you know, to to be a pleasant person to be around, to be humorous to be around, to be fun to be around, you know. And uh, Vivekananda's understanding that. Behind my purity was fear. You know, that's the first thing that usually brings us to spiritual life, or at least, I don't know if that's true, but for me it was. You know, the first things in spiritual life is a fear. You're like, oh my God, I especially, you know, the Christians, the Christians I grew up with, anyway, loved that idea of fear, (laughs) really treasured it, and really, really brought it home in some of those Sunday lectures, you know, the idea of an eternal hell, you know, of an infinite punishment for a very finite crime was like, it's terrifying, you know, and very effective because nobody knows, right? I mean, people can tell you anything about after you die, what can you do? You're like, I don't know. But even if there's just even a chance that that's true, what, you know? Yes, I'll make a donation <laughs> immediately. Or, you know, it's, it's not like that. But, but the, the, the idea behind this, that Vivekananda had come to a place of purity to where he could see the refractions of this world and not be caught up in the delusions of it so that he didn't love this world in the way that we love this world. You know, he loved this world in the way that he talks about here, which we've already read and we'll go back to again. But it was more his love of purity that gave him this understanding. He had found something more beautiful. He didn't have to be disappointed in the way the world was because he was experiencing something much greater, much more wonderful, much more worthwhile. And I think in our, in our situation... When I say our, I'm really meaning mine. I'm just kind of making a lot of assumptions. But in our situation, you know, we, we, we find out like, oh, I, I, can't, I 
can't drink anymore? <laughs> All right, I can manage, I guess. It's like a disappointment, you know, as we start to see things in the world. When I saw that all my friends just evaporated, there's a disappointment because we still believe in that, you know. We're still identified with that. We haven't found a root in that infinity that, that Vivekananda had found, you know, that, 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 that rests in the knowledge of the divine self. So as things fall out of our hands, we think we've lost something. You know, so renunciation, when we talk about renunciation, we talk about giving up. We talk about giving up, pushing things away, pushing things away. And to us, we're pushing away all the good stuff, <laughs> you know? It's like, I can't, I can't go to parties anymore. I can't go to movies anymore. I can't have sex anymore. You know, I can't go out and hang out with all my friends all night long doing crazy stuff anymore. It's like, we see it as giving up all the good stuff. And we're like, what's going to be left? And we have this horrible image of, you know, the, of these of smug churchgoers that just have no life and just sit there stiff-lipped, you know, like the church lady on Saturday Night Live. You know, it's just nobody anybody would want to be. We're like, oh my God, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. And even Tagore didn't want to be that, right? I mean, he said that all the time. Don't make me a dry sadhu. Oh, please, Ma, don't make me a dry sadhu. You know, which is another reason I like to hang out with him because I also, I don't want to be a dry sadhu either. I want to have a wonderful life. I want to be, a you know, a... An, I want this life, whatever it is. If this is God, I want to see God in it. I want to enjoy that God. I want to, to be with that divinity. I want to dance. My ideal is to whirl through the universe when I die, you know, in a waltz with the divine to that anahata sound, they say, plays in the spheres of existence. That's my ideal, to whirl with the divine, to dance with pure love, you know, to play and to see. Behind my guidance was the thirst of power, you know, so that influ- wanting to influence others, you know, that's a big, a big bane of religious people, a big bane of anybody that thinks they know something, is this need to tell everybody else, this is the way it is, I know what's right, I've got the inside scoop, you know, so he sees that it's just all of the impurities that basically tumble our days along together, because we don't understand, but he says, mother, I come, in your warm bosom floating wherever you take me. In the voiceless, in the strange, in the wonderland, I come a spectator, no more an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, and by by being that spectator and no more that actor, what does that mean? You know, that's one of the fundamentals of Vedanta. That means a purely spontaneous person, purely spontaneous person. He has no calculation going on of the effect of his actions or the good or bad of his actions, the right or wrong of his actions, because he's purified it so much that he's 100% spontaneous. Whatever love inspires happens in that state. When you're no longer the actor, meaning that you've no longer put a lens between you and God, you're no longer standing up and making sure that your existence is separate and apart from the divine, that you have a will that's yours. When you stop fighting that battle, when you let go, and become that pure love that you are, it's not that you then become nothing. It's not that you become careless, that you don't care about anything, that you're callous because you're just you're aloof and beyond all. It's not that at all. What it is at that point is that pure love, which is your nature, comes out in spontaneous beauty. What is the right thing to do at the moment is the thing that you naturally do in the moment. It's not a calculated effort. You don't have to be nice. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, 
care extra, like in a calculated way like that. You don't have to, to be a caring person because we're not dealing with that shopkeeper's world anymore. We've purified that. We've thrown that away. We've let go of that. We care because it's our nature to care. We love because it's our nature to love. We give because it's our nature to give. It's what has always made us happy. It is what always brought us happiness and peace. Oh, it is so calm. My thoughts seem to come from a great, great distance in the interior of my own heart. His own thoughts. See how close our thoughts are? Our thoughts happen and we, we think, I mean, they are what's closer, so close they can hear. You know, the anglets on an ant, <laughs> Vivekananda says about God. Our thoughts are closer to us than God in our normal day-to-day experience. Our thoughts are us. They are me. But see, in this state, he says, he says, my own thoughts are so far away. You know, he understands so far away. All of that need, <coughs> all of that hunger, all of that, all of that frenetic discontent of a shopkeeper's world, so far away. And what's there in peace, he says, they seem like faint, distant whispers, these thoughts. Peace is upon everything. Sweet, sweet peace. Like that one that one feels a few moments just before falling into sleep. Isn't that a nice one? I, 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 I identify with that one. I remember as a teenager many years ago <laughs> on Saturday mornings. Oh, I loved Saturday mornings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, because as a teenager, on Saturday mornings, I could sleep in as long as I wanted. And I just remember that feeling in the morning of rolling over and seeing it was 6.30 and being like, I don't have to get up. And you just kind of roll back over in the pillow. Oh, how nice the pillow felt as you kind of drift off into that next little morning nap. So I know exactly what Vivekananda is talking about. <laughs> One of the few things that Vivekananda says that I understand perfectly. You know, <laughs> That peace that comes just those moments just as you're drifting off into sleep. This was his experience. Like one feels for a few minutes before falling into sleep when things are seen and felt like shadows. Without fear. Without love. Without emotion. What's he saying there? There's none of these... None of these external things, none of the parts of the lens, you know, none, none of the interpretations of everything that's going on. All of it's just, just gone, just peace, just purity. Peace that one feels alone, surrounded with statues and pictures. I come, Lord, I come. So that understanding this world surrounded by statues and pictures, let's say he's making an allusion, of course, to temples which is this world, and he understands that that's all we've ever really dealt with here. You know, that here everything is just a representation of something else. Nothing is what it appears. You know, your mom, not your mom. She's a stand-in for the motherhood of God. You know, your best friend, not your best friend. A stand-in for the friendship of the divine. You know, your partner, not your partner a stand-in for your relationship with God, with that divinity. We're in a world of statues and pictures here. It's not going to be a loss when we renounce it all. Because we renounce it because we stand in the bosom of Mother, that divinity, with the direct knowledge of that which is being represented by everything in this world. 
that love that is represented, represented by your mom, you'll have first direct knowledge of that love, that intimacy between you and your partner. You'll have a direct knowledge of intimacy in that divinity when you find it within. You'll know that everything out here has only reflected back to you what already existed within you, that you were an infinite source of everything you've ever needed, everything that you ever needed. He said, the world is, but not beautiful or ugly. You see, because everything outside of you has no value. It's neutral. This world is neutral. Good things don't happen. Bad things don't happen. Things merely happen. It's you as the subject that determine whether they're good or bad. What makes them? You know, I know I've drawn this illusion before, but you know, a good test for this one was for me was for 9/11, of course, right? 9/11. For us, most of us in the room, I assume that was a horrible day. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> I have never experienced anything like that. Horrendous. But there were at least a few pictures of people somewhere else in the world that were found that to be a great day, a day of celebration, dancing in the streets, you know. So the event in itself just was. And then our attachments, our upadis, our definition of who we are determined whether it was good or bad, you know, whether it was right or wrong. This world, though, is just neutral. It just happens. You assign the value to it. The thing that is in you is the only thing of value. And you borrow of that to give everything else value in the world. You know? So by placing, by attaching yourself to things, you distribute the power that is within you. You, know, you actually make yourself weaker. Because you, like I know for a long time, my view of this internal battle that was going on, I I saw my mind as almost a separate entity that I would fight with, right? That I would have these arguments with about, you know, whether or not I was going to do this thing or not. And it's like, you know, you shouldn't. Well, it's not a big deal. You you probably shouldn't. Yeah, but, you know, I kind of like it. So you'd sit there, you have this argument. And I wasn't winning with that setup. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't moving forward in my spiritual life. And I was like, what's going on? Why am I not moving forward? And that's when I understood. It's like by giving my mind an entity, by dividing myself into two and giving half of my power to the mind to argue with me and half of the power to me to argue with my mind, I had become half as powerful as I was as a human being. The mind has no power. It has, it has no power. It has no position. It just, it's, a, it's an organ that secretes thought, like your armpit secretes sweat. <laughs> you know, It just does it. One string of thought, one thought after another thought after another thought. A string of thoughts, never an original thought. Always a thought directly, directly related to the previous thought. And yet, we think it's something. We think it's ours. We think it's spontaneous. We think it's clever. We think it's creative. We think it's new. It's none of those things. It's simple, simply an organ secreting thought. One based on the previous to the next one to the next one to the next one. When you know that, you understand there aren't two. There's only one. There is no argument. If I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. There's no one to argue with. There's no one to counter me. I am that. You know? 
to have that idea. If you're, if you're battling something in your life, take that perspective. It might be helpful. There is no battle inside. There's only one. If you make it two, you've cut your power in half. And you've done that so that you will lose the battle. <laughs> because you want your attachment. You want, you know, you want, you want to hold on to something that, that isn't of value. And so you cut yourself in half, make a battle, and you fight that battle long enough to feel okay, well, at least I fought, and I really put up a good effort, and oh, too bad I lost again. <laughs> too bad I lost again. But you don't have to feel so bad about it, because at least you battled it out for a while. That was my psychology. That's what I was dealing with, you know, in, in my life. That's, not the, that's what happens when you take yourself and you distribute yourself in this world of statues and pictures and give everything different amounts of power over you, you know, over yourself. So Vivekananda is sitting here, he's realizing the world is, it's not beautiful and it's not ugly. It's divine. But it's sensations. But they're sensations. They're just vibrations without exciting any emotion means they don't, they're not having a reaction inside of him. He's not having to respond to them. They just move through him, you know, move through him. Oh, Joe, the blessedness of it. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful. For things are all losing their relative proportions to me. My body among the first. Om to that existence. <clears throat> There's a wonderful poet, Sanskrit poet, that I found this week, and <laughs> probably all of you grew up with this person, Bhartrihari. You ever heard of him? Yeah, beautiful poetry from the fifth century, and uh, <laughs> wrote a very long poem. And uh, I actually was naive enough to put a lot of it down here, but there's some great parts in this. I'm going to read just one, just uh, a few stanzas to you here. For this life, which is like a drop of water on a lotus leaf, we have not enjoyed, but enjoyments have enjoyed us. We did not penance, but penances burnt us up. Time did not fly, and yet we are gone. We become decrepit with age, but not so desire. Infirmity assails us, the skin wrinkles, the hair whitens, the body becomes crooked, old age comes on. Desire alone grows younger every day. Hope is the name of this river whose water is desire, and thirst the waves thereof. Passion is the crocodile living in that water. Vain resolves are the birds that reside in the tree of virtue on the shores and kill it. But there the whirlpools of delusion and despondence, the high banks, the great yogis are blissful because they, with their pure mind, never crossed this river. That love of purity, that love of purity, that love of the pureness of our nature, absolute love, absolute existence, absolute being, infinite, eternal. That purity which allows us to be 100% spontaneous in the exercising of love, of caring and giving, to completely renounce the worthless things in life, to have that one piece of gold that's infinite in its value found within us, laying there in no danger of being lost, 
only in danger of being forgotten. There's a few things in this poem that I thought I'd bring up. <clears throat> this life like a drop of water on a lotus leaf. This, this experience, you know, as, as intimate as we are with our life. We're that behind it. This life is only a drop of water on a lotus leaf. We're not attached. We're not, it's not us. It's not integral to us. You know, it comes and it goes. We have not enjoyed, but enjoyments have enjoyed us. That's that whole thing. In this world, you know, everything, the the one thing, (laughs) oh God, may this be true. The one thing to know about this world that is secure is to know the effervescence of everything in this world. You know, there's a great poem by Hafiz where he says, he, t- he says, don't, don't, uh, <clears throat> don't envy those uh, uh, lovers of opiums and uh, secretions and gold. He says, for they cannot jump high nor can they dance long. You know, in this in this in this world, everything has such a short such a short span of existence. And if we can keep that understanding, you know, Takur says that the main tool that we have is discrimination. What is discrimination? Discrimination is taking a step back and broadening the mind and looking at things in a larger perspective to understand. It's like, you know, that that, that moment of pleasure is not worth blocking everything else out of your mind in order to capture, you know, because after it's over, it's over. It's done. Wherever you are, there you are. What does that mean? That means that right now, if you're happy, if you're content in yourself, and I move you to Pluto, (laughs) none of your family will be around. None of your jobs, none of your concerns, none of the beauties of the earth, none of that will be there. But you'll be there. The contentment that you're feeling at this moment will be there. Its requirement is nothing. Wherever you are, there you are. He says that, that we have not enjoyed, but joyments have enjoyed us, that we've been played by these things, that we did not any penance, which means we didn't intentionally to do anything to pay for these things, and yet we're continually paying. Penance has burnt us up, you know, because everything in this world that you go, that you pursue as a desire, you pay for. You pay for. Everything will reap, will, will reap from your fingers a payment of some kind. And we go along from one desire to the next desire, having to work 8, 10, 12 hours a day to pay for desires, for that beautiful car, for that big house, for that lovely vacation, for that beautiful wife, that handsome husband, those 19 wonderful children. (laughs) (laughs) Continually paying, continually paying. So the penance is, we didn't do any of it as a form of penance, we went chasing after our desires and ended up being burnt by our penances, having to pay for it all continue. Time did not fly, and yet we are gone. What does that mean? We're not children of time. We have only ever existed in the present. We didn't exist in the past. We don't exist right now in the past. We don't exist right now in the future. We have only existed in the present, ever. And in that present, there, wasn't a, there, there is no time. It's always here always now. That's who we are. That's what this life is. We are that eternal being. You know, time is of no consequence to us. It's consequence to a body, to these drops of water on the lotus leaf, but not to us. The hair whitens, the body becomes crooked, old age comes, 
Desire alone grows younger every day. <laughs> Your desires don't leave you. And this is, a, this is a thing I've mentioned before because it's such a prominent lesson in my life. You know, those things in this world that people want, those desires that are of the senses, they require youth. They require beauty. You know, they require wealth. They require time. They require all of those things. And if you invest in them in your youth when you're young, if those are the things you develop in order to get those things, what will happen to you in the second half of your life when you're not lovely? <laughs> you know, when your hair has whitened and your face has wrinkled, you know, what will you use to fish for your desires then? And you still have half your life to live. What pain is there in that? Be wise. Understand. Find that which is within. I've told this story a million times about Swami Asitananda, but it's become one of those Jungian uh, uh, you know, symbols to me of this. <clears throat> Swami Asitananda, in his last days, had a, a, a broken hip and a bone infection in his heel, and he couldn't get out of a chair. He could only sit in a chair 24 hours a day. He could recline it to sleep at night and sit it up during the day. And he was in a room, not a pretty room, as a room in a barn in a, at the Alima Retreat. You know, sat in that back room. Alima Retreat, I mean, it's a 2,300-acre retreat. There's this, the biggest town is four miles down the road, and there's like 12 people living there. You know, so it's like no visitors, no entertainments. There was no radio. There was no, he had nothing in his room but, but his bed in there. And every time in those last days that I would walk by that room, I would see him sitting in that chair with the most beautiful smile on his face, the most beautiful contentment, unaware that I was watching and checking in on him. You know, the last time I saw him, he was in a wheelchair. I've told this story too. The, the last time I saw him, he was in a wheelchair at an old folks' home because we couldn't take care of him anymore. Uh, he was too, too big. The third, the third time that he had fallen... We couldn't pick him up. So we, they, he went to, to that home for like the last few weeks of his life. And the last day I went to see him, he was sitting in a wheelchair facing down one of those you know, long uh, institutional hallways that you can only find in hospitals and old folks' homes. <laughs> you know, they have a railing along the wall so people can make their way to the kitchen. <clears throat> and he was facing a door you know, that had a big stop sign on it. And I went in and I came up and he was, and I stood behind him for a minute, just watched him. And he was just sitting there, just again, with that, that look of just like nothing mattered to him. Happy, you know, but not happy in the sense of needing to express it, just content, just somehow content. And I walked around and I said, Swami, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I was wheeling along in my wheelchair, but then I looked up and the sign said stop, so I did. You know, again, just that, that contentment that was there because he had invested his life in that beauty which is within. And in the second half of his life, he got to enjoy that, to sit with that divinity, to sit with that love. You know, if you don't make that investment, bitterness is the result. You know, resentment becomes the result because the world doesn't serve the old. <laughs> You know, desires don't benefit the old. There's nobody out there trying to please the old. You know, 
<clears throat> so know that now and make your life accordingly. Hope is the name of the river whose water is desire. Hope is what? Hope is, is kind of a believing that something is coming that's going to fulfill you. Something is going to come and make you happy. That's the state of being in desire. You're never content in the moment. You're always waiting. You're always hoping for that thing to come, for that perfect situation to happen, that perfect job, that perfect raise, that perfect partner, that perfect encounter, that perfect whatever. Always waiting, always hoping. Ah, ah life gets better. <laughs> that big thing on the internet, life gets better, it gets better. Ah, it doesn't get any better than it is. Your isness can be better, but it's never going to get better than your present. If you don't develop the present, you'll never have that betterness. So stand in that. That is the mind of Shiva. That is the mind of the yogi. And that's where love exists. Cherish these positive thoughts. Break down the forgetfulness by remembering. I am that. Pure love. Remember your nature. Express it purely. Be free from all of those things. Shiva goes on and on for the good of the world, the eternal incarnation, Sister Nivedita says. So manifest Shiva, that infinite love. Renounce the worthless things. Cling to that one thing that is God and God alone. And express your nature spontaneously, purely, and wonderfully. Remind yourself in this world of relativity that everything is always new, that God is perfect and everywhere present. <clears throat>